Open your Bibles with me to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. It's the eighth of those 12 minor prophets. The book of Zephaniah. On Sunday mornings, we've been journeying through uh, the minor prophets. Minor prophets only, minor only because they're smaller than the major prophets. Not because they are of minor significance. They are of major significance. Minor prophets, major messages. Hosea told us that God's love is a radical love. Joel told us that God speaks to us through our circumstances. Amos was a nobody who commanded nobodies like us to care for nobodies out in our world. Obadiah showed us that we get out of life what we put into life. Jonah revealed to us that prejudice has no place among the people of God. Micah told us that God wants all of us to be just like Him, just like God. Nahum told us that our God is patient, but He's patient only up to a point. And then last week, Habakkuk showed us us that even when things appear to go from bad to worse, God is still in control, God still has a plan, and we have to trust Him even if we don't see uh, enough light to go two steps ahead of us from where we are. We can still trust God. And today, we're going to look at uh, the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah, we'll read the first seven verses of chapter 1, and then we'll skip over and read one verse in chapter 2, and then we'll read the concluding verses of chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. During the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Now, let me just stop right there and say, hey, does it get any gloomier than that? This is a bad news passage, a bad news passage. This is the kind of thing that we would expect from the minor prophets. It's one of the reasons why people just avoid them like the plague because of the gloom and doom. Hey, but the tone changes. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord All you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Well, there's still judgment there, but a little bit of hope in there, too. In fact, that verse has a little more hope than it does judgment. Now let's skip to chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, and we'll see the tone change even more. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. 
The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Isn't that an amazing change in tone? I mean, you go from chapter 1 where the Lord is angry. He is going to wipe out everything that breathes, both mankind, animal life, uh, life in the sea. He's going to wipe it all out because he's so angry over the sins of the people. Then in chapter 2, he starts to turn a little bit and, he's, and he starts offering hope to those who are humble enough to accept that hope. And you go from there to chapter 3 when it's all hope. It's all mercy. It's all grace. It's all love. It's all forgiveness. What a strange mixture in a three-chapter book. Zephaniah is a prophet who prophesied, according to chapter 1, verse 1, during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was a good king. Now, uh, uh, he, had, uh, he had some predecessors who were not so good, and there were some uh, people, kings who came after him who were not so good. But Josiah was a good king. When he was about 18 years old, he had them clean out the storage attics of the, of the temple and they found in one of the storage closets a copy of the law of God. Probably the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And he began to read it. And as he read it, he saw a strange contrast between what God commanded in his law versus the way the people were living. There was a huge uh, dis discrepancy between the way that God told them to live versus the way they were living. And so he called all the prophets of God together and he says, look, what does this mean? We need to call people back to God. And there was a great revival under the kingship of Josiah. He reigned somewhere in the late 600s BC, somewhere around 640 to 620, long in, in those years. Those were really good years. God smiled upon the people of Judah during those years. But then Josiah died. He was killed in battle at a place called Megiddo. And after he was killed in battle, mm, things didn't go so well. His son Manasseh was one of the most wicked rulers who ever lived. His son Ammon was, was equally bad until the point where by the time you get to five, uh, 590, 589, 587, uh, 588, 587 B.C., God allows the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar to come down into Judah and level Jerusalem and take away most of the people into captivity. Zephaniah was a prophet during the reign of Josiah. He may have been instrumental in helping Josiah to bring about these revivals that took place under Josiah's kingship. Zephaniah says this, he says, he says I came to reign in the, in the uh, year of uh, 
Josiah's reign, but he says, I have the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a very famous name in the Old Testament. And we don't know for sure if this Hezekiah was King Hezekiah, who was also a great king. But certainly, Zephaniah was, was equating himself with Hezekiah, a very famous name. And if he was the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, then that means he was a cousin of Josiah. And so he was informing his cousin, potentially, about the need to come back to God. But his, his message was a mixture of judgment and hope. It was a strange mixture of judgment in chapter 1 that bleeds into chapter 2. And you see it still in chapter 3 in the opening verses, but it was also later sprinkled with hope. The prophets, they always were blunt with the people, honest about the bad things that were happening in, in, the, in their lives. But at the same time, they always wanted to offer hope. You may wonder, well, here we are, we're getting into the Advent season. Advent means of the arrival of Jesus, and the four Sundays before uh, Christmas are known as Advent. There are times when we prepare our hearts and our minds for Christmas, the arrival of Christ. You may think, why in the world, Jimmy, are you preaching on the minor prophets in Advent? All four Sundays of Advent, we're going to be looking at minor prophets. Can't you just wait? There's a good reason. The last four minor prophets, they prepare us for the advent. In fact, they, there's a reason why they're the last four books of the Old Testament, because they are the last ones to look ahead 400 years down the road to the arrival of Christ's coming. And Zephaniah is one of them. Oh, we, we may not see uh, a great messianic passage in the book of Zephaniah, but I'll tell you what we do see. We see a beautiful picture of the Christmas season in Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a mixture of judgment, bad news, and hope, good news. Christmas, for many people, is a mixture of good, joy, happiness, but also it is a time of great sorrow for many people. We see the joy in the songs. Tis the season to be jolly. Sing it. Love and joy come to you, and to you your wassail too. I was going to let you sing that one, but you didn't know the word wassail. Yeah. How many of you knew wassail? No, nobody. Happy holiday. Happy holiday, while the merry bells keep ringing, may your every wish come true. Have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year. And who sings that better than anybody? No, the snowman on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. (laughs) It's the most wonderful time of the year. We have a music uh, expert up here. We see it in the, we hear it in the, in the joys. We hear, we hear the happiness of Christmas in the sounds of the songs. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The songs of Christmas, and we thrive on the joy and the happiness of these songs. One of the, one of the great things about going shopping, if you, if you go shopping at all, is not so much the, the thrill of a bargain or a, on the clearance aisle, but you hear the songs over the loud system, the songs of joy. But I read an article recently by a lady uh, who 
whose name is Shauna Hopkins, she wrote an article during the Christmas time, and, and she had just experienced both the joy of, of a new child in her family and the loss of a family member. And here's what she said. She said, Christmas is a, a bittersweet time in my life right now. She said, seeing the lights of my baby's first Christmas reflected in her wide, wandering eyes made me smile, and yet I cannot enjoy this special holiday as I should because it is my first Christmas without my Papa Dan. It's a beautiful excerpt from an article that pictures and, 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 and captures what a lot of people feel in the Christmas season. And so, of course, we have to go to Elvis. Christmas without you. Hallelujah, so blue. Turn me up, Bruce. Hallelujah, without you. I'm just kidding. Don't turn me up, Bruce. Don't turn me up, Bruce. That's about all I can stand, I think. There's a reason why that song touched such, uh, was so popular. Aside from the fact that it was Elvis who was singing it, it, it touched a nerve with people because it touched them where they were. Whenever I was younger, I always wondered, how can country music be so popular? And the reason is country music, more than any other music, touches people where they are. My D-I-V-O-R-C. Man, that's a heartbreak song. People, people, they, they, they seem to congregate around those heartache songs. <laughs> All these songs are in the Baptist hymnal. You can look. <laughs> but think about the people who don't necessarily think this is the happiest time of year. First, there are those who are overcome by grief because of the loss of a loved one. Then there are those who are, over, who are grieving over broken relationships families that are broken, children that uh, are, are maybe rebellious and have left. Then there are those people who, who have no, it's not that they've lost a loved one or that there's a broken relationship. They're just flat lonely. They have no family and no friends. Recently, I had a funeral. I was asked to uh, say a few words at a funeral. It was a graveside service out at Holly Hill. Got out there. It was in the middle of the day in the uh, spring of the year. And I arrived, and we had the service. There were six people there. Two of them were the funeral home directors. Two of them were from the burial service. One of them was a lady, a friend of the deceased, who showed up five minutes late for the service, and me. For some people, Christmas is one big, lonely mouthful of blue. And then there are those who've not lost a loved one, don't have a broken relationship. They have family and friends, but it's just, it's just a, a, a kind of a sad time. And they don't even know why. And, they're, and because they don't know why, they're ashamed, really, to say much of anything about it. Well, uh, Zephaniah is the sort of prophet who has something to say to those of us who find some time during the Christmas season that it's more blue than happy holidays, that it's more blue Christmas than it is white Christmas. And so he has some things to say to us, and I want to relay them to you, how to deal really with blue Christmas 
And it has to do with this whole idea of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah speaks of the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, there are 19 places where the day of the Lord, that phrase, is mentioned. And it's always a two-pronged day, a day of hope and excitement, a day of judgment and despair. And, And those two are mixed together, not like oil and water, but like salt and pepper thrown together or sands at a wedding that have been thrown together and can't be separated anymore. They're sprinkled together. Joy and sadness. What does Zephaniah have to say to us when there are times of sadness that we experience during the Christmas, the Advent season? The first thing that he would say to us is this, don't rely only on yourself. If you are someone who experienced sadness during the season, don't rely only on yourself. In chapter 1, verse 4, Zephaniah announces the judgment that is to come not on the neighboring nations, but on Judah and Jerusalem. And here's what he says in verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, why is this significant? Because the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem are the people to whom he's speaking. Listen, I'm saying this to you. I'm going to judge you. What is he really saying? You can't rely merely on yourself to make it through the sadness of the season. You can't just rely on yourself to make it through the doldrums that will come your way from time to time, whether it's Christmas or any other season of the year. Don't rely only on yourself. And certainly when it comes to your own salvation, to your own eternal life, you can't rely on yourself at all because you'll fail. The second thing he says is this, get back to the basics. When you are are potentially experiencing the sadness of the season, the sadness more than the the celebration of the season, get back to basics, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He calls Judah back to God, and he specifically uh, says in verse 3, to seek righteousness and seek Humility. Now think about that. Righteousness and humility. Righteousness means living right. That sounds like God. But God is also not only about living righteously, he's about living humbly. There's nothing more sickening than a Christian who uh, lives righteously or claims to, but has no humility about him or her. On the other hand, we can, we can be so, so humble and so wishy-washy, softly humble that we have no righteousness about us. But God is a unique combination of the two, and he calls us to live in a unique combination of the two, righteousness and humility. They are the basics. And so when you're living in the Christmas season and, and you're tempted sometimes to fall prey to the sadness, the blues of Christmas, get back to the basics. Don't rely only on yourself. Reach out to others, but also get back to the basics. Number three, avoid relying on solutions that are false solutions. Avoid, avoid relying on solutions that are false solutions. Avoid false solutions. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. We didn't read those, but if you go back and read them, you'll find that Zephaniah announces that judgment is also coming not only on Judah and Jerusalem, but on all the lands that surround Jerusalem. He starts out in verses 4 through 7 saying that judgment will come on the Philistines. Then in in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, he says judgment will fall on the Moabites and the Ammonites. Then in in verse 12, he says it will happen to the Ethiopians to the south. And then in verses 13 through 15, 
15, he says judgment will fall on the Assyrians to the northeast. In other words, don't go running from your problems to the Assyrians or to the Moabites or to the Ammonites or to the Ethiopians or to any of these people because that's the wrong solution. Whenever you, uh, whenever you and I face uh, the discouragement and the depression and the blues of Christmas, sometimes we, in order to solve those blues, we will revert to some, quote, solutions that are not really solutions. For some people, they, they choose the solution of, of uh, uh, overindulging in alcohol. That's not a solution. In fact, it makes the depression worse. For other people, it is uh, drugs. For other people, it is gambling. For other people, it is overspending. For some of us, myself, it's overeating. But in all of those things, we're trying something that doesn't work. Don't fall prey to looking for solutions among those non-solutions. Avoid false solutions. Number four, stay busy. I love chapter 3, verse 16, because he says this. He says, do not let your hands hang limp. What's he saying? Don't just sit back and do nothing. Be busy. Don't don't just stay in the bed and refuse to get out. Don't just stay in front of the television and refuse to get up. Don't just stay in front of the computer and refuse to be pried away from it. Get busy. Be doing something. One of the best things we can do is help somebody else. It, It does more for us inside than anything else we could do. And it is what the Lord would do, is help others. He says, do not... Let your hands hang limp. Do not let them grow weak. Stay busy. Number five, listen to the music. Listen to the music. Now, this could be a double-edged sword. Some folks who are discouraged during the Christmas time, it's the very sounds of Christmas that seem to deepen the depression. But I I urge you to, to immerse yourself, immerse ourselves in the music of Christmas. Go to a Christmas concert even if you don't feel like it. Get up and go to the musical even if you don't feel like it. Next next Sunday night, our children will be doing their Christmas musical. And two weeks from tonight, we'll be having our adult Christmas musical. These are great times to get a part of the music of Christmas. You probably saw this week that the oldest living Holocaust survivor turned 107. How many of you saw that? Anybody? She turned 107, a lady. Her name is Alice. Alice Hurt Sommer. She was taken to a concentration camp. She experienced the murder of her husband in the concentration camp, the murder of her mother, and countless other family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, in the concentration camp. But she was spared. Recently, she was interviewed and someone asked her, what is it that has sustained you during all these years? She was a concert pianist. In fact, when she was moved to the final concentration camp where she she stayed, they actually, the, the, the Germans actually allowed her to play concert piano, a piano concert for the other prisoners who were there before they were killed. How did you make it? What sustains you? How is it that at 107, you still are as bright, your eyes still twinkle as they do in spite of all the loss that you have had in your life? And here's what she said. She said, my love of music 
has sustained me throughout all those years of darkness and heartbreak. And ladies and gentlemen, get this. At 107, Alice practices her piano three hours every day. At 107. It was the music that carried her through those years. Listen to the music. Number six, let the shame go. Let the shame go. Shame is, is, uh, is the emotion that we feel as a result of guilt. Now, sometimes we truly are guilty of some sin, and we feel the shame of the guilt of that sin. And, and what we need to remember when we feel the shame of guilt of a sin that we actually committed is that God is a forgiving God. That God really does forgive us. He really does take our sins and throw them away from us as far as the east is from the west. He really does, even though I don't understand how he does, he really does forget our sin once we turn it over to him and confess it and repent of it. You say, how can an omniscient, all-knowing God forget something? The only way I can answer that is to say that an omniscient God can forget something because he's also an omnipotent God. There's nothing that he can't do. And so it is entirely possible for God to forgive and forget even the worst sin you've ever committed if you truly repent and turn it over to him. That kind of shame can be dealt with. Some people feel shame over something that they're really not even guilty of. Some of you are experiencing that right now. It's not that you've done anything specifically heinous in your life, but there's some sense of shame that you feel over something that you're really not guilty of. And, and this, this is something that Satan is an expert at. He is the accuser of the brethren. The New Testament says he is the one who is constantly bringing up to your mind both things you did do that were wrong and things that you didn't do, but somehow he will convince you you did do them. Let go of the shame. Let it go. In chapter 3, verse 19, here's what Zephaniah quotes God saying. He says, and I will change their shame into praise. How do you let go of shame? You convert it into praise. You convert it into praise. Sing the songs. You convert it into praise. Say the prayers. You convert it into praise. Memorize the scripture. You can convert it into praise. Talk with the Lord. You don't have to count sheep. Talk to the shepherd, man. And then number seven. Remember that God is in your midst and he promises restoration and renewal. Chapter three, verse 17. God says this. The Lord God is in your midst. And the verse ends saying, and he will rejoice over you. The Lord is in your midst and he will rejoice over you. Verse 20 says, I will restore your fortunes. Verse 18 says, I will remove disaster from you. Remember that God is in your midst. You say, well, I don't feel like he is. I don't feel like he is. One of the uh, dangers that we face in life not just at Christmas time, but any time, is the danger of falling prey to our feelings. We're a very, many people are, are very feelings-oriented, emotions-oriented, and we, we seem to equate emotions always with the movement of God. Sometimes God's movement does evoke 
uh, emotions and feelings in us. But let me tell you this, feelings are not everything that God is. And there are times when God will be in our midst and we can't feel him. But the fact that we don't feel him doesn't mean that he's not there. In fact, he's always there whether we feel him or not. We can suffer from blue Christmas. We think we're all alone. But we need to remember the words of Jesus who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says here in verse 17, he will renew you in his love. A woman who recently lost her husband and was facing her first Christmas without him included in her Christmas cards a letter which she reflected upon and she wrote down some of her thoughts and her feelings and here's what she said, quote, now remember this was a little note that she inserted into each of her Christmas cards. She says, I wonder about many things, things that I have noticed. I wonder how can it be that my husband who is now dead continues to live and minister to me and to the children. I wonder, how is it that in the midst of searing heartache, I find God and He gives me the power to keep on going? I wonder, how is it that as a result of this tragedy, old friendships have been deepened and new friendships have been formed? And she concludes the note by saying this. She said, it's Christmas. Christmas is the promise that God can be trusted to meet all of our needs. Some say the first Christmas without my husband will be painful, and I'm sure that it will be. But she said, without Christmas, my life would be impossible. You see, Jesus' birth is what we celebrate in the Christmas season, the arrival of Jesus. And during this time when for so many people Christmas is, is more blue than white, it is that same presence of the Christ who came the first Christmas it is that same presence that if we allow Him to fill our hearts and our minds will redeem us from the blueness of Christmas today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for opening the door to this Christmas season. We thank You, Lord, for the arrival of the Son of God what all it means that God left your throne in heaven and you came here to be with us. Lord, you left the palace for the pigsty to dwell among us, to get dirty among us, to die among us and for us. And Lord, I pray that you would lift our spirits. Lord, for many people, perhaps most people in this congregation, this season is going to be so full of joy and excitement and wonder and family, friends, and worship. But Lord, for others, this time is going to be sprinkled with the bittersweet seasoning of sadness and grief and loss and loneliness. And Lord, help us to be able to say something do something, sing something, pray something, be something that is the incarnation of Jesus for those people. Lord, also as we open up this Christmas season, Lord, we remember the very reason you came to earth, and that is to save lost people. 
And so, Lord, in this congregation, if there's someone who is lost, who's never invited you into their heart to be their Savior and Lord, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that person or persons would come and be saved. Be saved eternally. And experience Christmas like never before. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Zephaniah and for his unique mixture of your word that is so honest but yet so full of hope. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.